and welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 247, and tonight we are finally going to begin the ascent up Karathras and get the very beginnings of Karathras's counterattack against such a trespass. Um, so uh, that's where we're headed here this evening uh, on this fine winter evening. We're uh, soon going to be, once again, <laughs> as we do every year, sooner or later, uh, catch up to the point where our calendar, uh, our real world calendar passes, you know, com comes into phase briefly uh, with the time when the story is taking place. It's not yet. It's not yet. But we're starting to approach. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it come as, um, you know, we've been having more wintry weather up here in the Northeast and we're getting now to the snow scenes. So uh, I'm... Uh, as I say, I'm feeling the approach. Um, one uh, uh, one announcement I wanted to make here uh, uh, tonight before we get started. Um, so I we talked about this. I talked about this with Elise Trudel Cedeno, the coordinator of our Signum Academy Clubs program, at our uh, uh, campaign ending event a couple weeks ago on the 19th of November. But I wanted to repeat it here for those who hadn't heard. Uh, we have some new. Uh, Signum clubs that are happening, Signum Academy clubs that are starting up in January. Um, we have a Japanese conversation club and an Elvish translation club. So we're going to uh, we're going to start learning uh, Tolkien's invented languages. Um, these are opportunities for kids. We're looking at primarily uh, like middle school and high school age kids uh, is what we're going to be focusing on for these clubs programs. Um, and uh, uh, and we're also going to be starting up another creative writing uh, section. So we've had we have our book club, which is still going. We've been doing um, uh, we have two sections now running for our old English translation club. Um, we've been doing creative writing. We're starting up a new section here coming up soon. Um, but we are. Yeah, we're going to be we're going to be starting up these new again, a, a, another section of creative writing and then two new things that we've never offered before. Japanese Conversation Club and um, and Elvish Translation Clubs. And I have several people in my family very excited about this, um, uh, very excited about uh, uh, both of those. Actually, I, I have one in my household who I believe is going to be joining the Japanese club uh, and um, I. Uh, and then uh, I have uh, some nephews who have been waiting for an Elvish translation club. Um, uh, so, yes, um, uh, it is. Those are. Um, see, now, JJ, you have every opportunity. It's funny, see, because the, the thing things have come back around on this. So when we originally announced clubs last year. Um, we had a bunch of people who were like, hey, that sounds awesome. Why can't we do something like that? And it was partly in response to people saying those things that we launched our space program to begin with. And now we've had the space program going on for an entire year. And now uh, the grown-ups have this uh, embarrassment of riches. I don't know if you have noticed, but there have been 22 
uh, modules confirmed for January uh, of 2023 in space. Uh, massive, by far the, the largest number of modules we've ever offered in a month before is 17, and we're jumping up to 22 uh, in January. January is a, a huge month uh, of growth for us in space. It's really, really exciting. Um, but uh, we may we may get up close to 200 enrollments in space in January. So cool. Uh, such a fun program. But anyway, as I say, uh, space initially kind of began as like, let's do clubs for grownups. And now, uh, of course, uh, you know, now things have kind of turned around and now clubs has almost become like space for kids. Um, but um, anyhow, um, we're... Um, uh, so, but I, I did want to bring it to people's attention. So, if you want to, if you want to know how you can sign up for that, or if you have, you know, friends or, or family that you know, like my, uh, you know, was, uh, just hanging out with my uh, brother and sister-in-law this weekend, and they were asking me about it, and I was telling them about our our translation club and stuff for El, in, in Elvish. Um, so. Here's here's what you do. Go to the Signum University homepage, signumuniversity.org. Go to non-degree programs and Signum Academy there. And if you scroll down, you can find some general information on how these clubs work. Our book club, writing club, conversation club, and translation club are sort of the four different categories that we have. We're continuing our book club, which has been great. That's the one Elise teaches herself. Um, she's a phenomenal group uh, of uh, uh, of kids in the in the book club there. Um, we're gonna, so we're continuing that. We're continuing our old English club, um, and we're adding the Elvis Translation Club, the Japanese Conversation Club, and a new section of creative writing uh, there. So if you want to learn more a little bit about how these work and things, you can definitely do that. And to register, all you do is just click on this registration link down here and fill out this simple registration form telling us about uh, you know your kid and preferences and stuff. One of the things you'll see is there's a lot of questions about uh, your schedule and availability because of of course, we take that into account. Um, we don't ha we have not posted times because we um, this is how we do things. We do all of the stuff that we do at Signum um, is uh, we are really dedicated to synchronous live synchronous teaching um, that that kind of a classroom experience of being able to be there with other people with, uh, uh, you know, a dedicated teacher is just is, is a really, really important environment um anyway but what that means is that we have also dedicated ourselves uh to making sure we put in the effort to try to make things fit so we're not just announcing a time and if that doesn't fit in your schedule or your time zone you know then uh, uh then you're out of luck we find out first who's going to be involved and then we work a schedule that will fit as many people as we possibly can uh we actually had a a student uh, from we have uh, no uh, not anymore we had for a while for over a year uh, a student from Turkey uh, who is in our our translation club so um, anyway it's um, uh, t time zones we can work with time zones uh, but anyway so all of that kind of information is what you'll find here on the registration form and then once we get things set up and we get you know a schedule set and everybody is good to go um, then uh, then that's when we begin the subscription payments there the the clubs are done it's a $90 a month subscription um, it's possible to have a, a, a sort of a, a group like a large family rate if there are two siblings in a family or three siblings in a family who all want to do a club we try 
charge less per student, you know. Um, and uh, we have some other discounts, like a military discount and things like that. So, um, again, you can find all this information on the Signum Academy page. But the first step is to fill out that registration form. Let us know that, that you know, you've got some kids who are going to be interested in this uh, starting up in January. We'll start up in January or soon after that as we get everything, uh, you know, we get everything worked out uh, with our students. But the hope is to begin in January there. Um, but uh, anyway, so... I, uh, I, I will uh, just encourage people to look into that. Um, see if you, and again, send the link around uh, to folks who might be interested uh, that you know in this. I think it's, it's a phenomenal, pro I can say as a parent, um, you know, my son who has been in this program uh, for over a year, uh, it's a really, really cool program. So um, I hope that you will, uh, um, that you will look into this and share that with folks if you can. So, all right. That is one of the things that's coming up. Now, let us get back. Speaking of coming up, let's head up towards Karathras. Um, all right. So here's Boromir's interruption. I just wanted to keep this up here because I always regret it if I move the slide down <laughs> right away. Um, but, um, yeah. Oh, and absolutely, you're right, Aranas. Eight and a half weeks to Osmoot. Yeah, we're getting close to Osmoot, Australia. So excited for the trip to Australia. Um, it's going to be a great, great moot. We've been, we've been, I've been looking at the schedule. Um, uh, it's going to be a phenomenal uh, moot. So yeah, uh, pretty, pretty cool. Um, okay, anyway, so here is Boromir's uh, suggestion, um, and. As I say, I don't, as I was saying last time, I don't think we have like full, um, full information, full context really to, uh, in my opinion, sort of the tone of this, what this tells us about Boromir on its own, this passage I think is uncertain. Um, you could easily do this in a way, like if you were performing this on stage or something, right? If you're, you're if you're, you know, screening this in an adaptation. So if you imagine yourself as a director, um, uh, working with even in like an audio dramatization or something, um, working with an actor who is playing Boromir, you could instruct that actor in a couple different ways, right? You could instruct your Boromir actor uh, to deliver this speech in a way which conveys that he is lacks confidence in the leadership of the crew, right? I mean, that's um, one way that this could be read. I don't think it's in inescapable at all to read it that way. You could also show him being both diplomatic and even humble, in a sense here. Just, just you know, offering his advice and suggestion in, as we were looking at last time, quite a polite and diplomatic way. Um, he is certainly not, like, giving lip to anybody here. Um, so... As I say, I don't think that there's anything intrinsically in the text which forces one or other of the two readings. On its own, if, if we had nothing else, if we just had this page as like a fragment, I would not see any internal evidence in this passage alone which suggests that Boromir is being like, um, uh, you know... Well, I was going to say that he's being snarky, except he is being snarky in one sentence, right? Um, it will not help us to keep so secret that we are frozen to death. 
definitely smacks of snark, as we discussed last time. Uh, but again, that could just be sort of levity, right? Like, you know, like I, I'm she's just keeping it light. Right, just keeping it light. Um, let's make jokes about hypothermia going up into the mountain. Like that, that, that works. Like that totally works. Um, the primary reason that I bring up the question, the issue, I should say, of his qu- potentially questioning the authority or the leadership of the company, is that I think we're gonna we're gonna see a little bit more of that. I think when we put it together with some of the other things that we're going to be seeing in the next few chapters, I think it will become clearer and clearer that this is um, the first small and gentle sign of Boromir's unrest, perhaps. Um, but um, but we'll see, you know, we, we, will, we will watch that unfold as we go, but I, I wanted to just kind of uh, sort of flag that uh, as we as we go through. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Wobe, <laughs> yeah, Wobe says, part of me is really tempted by a reading that really puts the boar in Boromir. <laughs> I really like that, Wobe. Um, but, he says, but I think Sean Bean's Boromir has really knocked that reading out of me. Yeah, and well, I agree. At the end of the day, I mean, I'm glad you raised that because I think that many people, like, obviously, Boromir's attempt to take the ring from Frodo can be a little hard to get over. You know, I mean, like, it's it's a bad look. Right? The optics are bad on on you know the fact that Boromir of all the party is at least temporarily going to fall uh, in ways that nobody else in the party is going to fall, and so therefore, on rereadings it is natural to have that salient event, right? The knowledge of his eventual failure and to have that looming over everything he does earlier on. Um, And as I think that many people, you know, to varying extents have that kind of a reaction to Boromir. There are a lot of Boromir fans out there. I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that everybody hates Boromir, obviously, but, um, but, but I do think that there's a kind of a trend in that direction and that, or at least let me say it a little bit more cautiously. Let me say instead that I think that very many readers at at least some point in their relationship with Boromir have had to work through this issue, right? Of, um, having the distrust of where he's eventually going to go um, be kind of read into where he is. And it's one of the things that I've been wanting to do since we first met Boromir in the Council of Elrond is to try to be, try to remember, um, to read him not through the lens of that moment later on, as if that moment, the moment when he gives in and tries to take the ring from Frodo, as if that is the thing that defines him, as if that's who Boromir really is. And that, therefore, you know, everything else is kind of in some sense to be a pointer in that direction. I mean, again, that's, it's a very natural way to read Boromir's character on rereadings of the story. Um, but I think it's important not to let that happen because we're given some lenses through which to read Boromir. We're told 
not very much about him. I mean, we don't know his whole history. We don't know that much about his personality or, you know, his hobbies or whatever. I mean, there's a lot we don't know about Boromir, but, um, but when we fit what we see him do and say into his, into the framework for him that we're given, I do think that um, we, we get a picture of him, which I think puts his eventual end into a clearer context. And by his eventual end, I mean not his attempt to take the ring from Frodo, but rather his dying to attempt to save Merry and Pippin. Um, and the payoff of this effort, of the effort to just try to evaluate Boromir based as much as we can only on what we have been told about him so far, um, is, uh, I think, going to um, uh, going to pay off emphatically when we get to Boromir's last words, uh, his last conversation to Aragorn. Um, and uh, so, and again, like I said, it, to me, it makes a whole lot of sense. Again, it's one of the it's one of the benefits of reading slowly like this, right? Is that we can afford to take the time. Um, with even minor characters. Boromir is an important character, but he's a very minor character. And I know that he was never central on my radar screen. I mean, I remember reading as a kid, um, and I liked Boromir. I sort of admired Boromir. Um, but there's a lot of characters. I mean, you know, uh, my focus was more on Gandalf and, and, and uh, you know, the Hobbits, obviously, and then Gandalf and then Aragorn and... Um, you know, Legos and Gimli were kind of interesting. I mean, Boromir is, uh, um, you know, it's easy to not pay all that much attention to him as you read through um, until all of a sudden he obtrudes himself very significantly upon your notice, right? And then, of course, that itself, um, as I say, can sort of taint your um, uh, your reading later on. But um, anyhow, so uh, this is my... <laughs> This is my 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 little my little apologia for um, uh, for the way that I want to be careful to treat Boromir uh, as we go through. Um, but anyway, but I do think we're going to be seeing an interesting pattern emerging, and in that this I suspect that in retrospect, maybe I'll be maybe I'll be surprised. I often am, you know, when we're looking more carefully as we do uh, in these discussions. Um, but my belief. Uh, is that we will, in retrospect, see that this is one of the first. The blowing of the horn may be the very first, um, but that uh, this is one of the early data points uh, in showing this sort of uh, the direction of this um, development of Boromir's character. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Eternal Cow, no, this would be interesting. Um, uh, someone should write a paper about Boromir and reread a response literary theory. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I, 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 there are, I think, a, a functionally infinite number of really interesting discussion topics or paper topics or, um, you know, talk topics. Uh, I think that it, would actually be a really interesting kind of case study um, in, uh, you know, in close reading and in how things sort of respond. But um, uh, yeah, 
yeah um yeah um yeah two juice man that's interesting so two juice man says i think it really works to juxtapose boromir's mindset with gandalf's Boromir is an old campaigner, as Baragond would say, and is nothing if not practical. Gandalf, I think, expects the attempt to cross Carothros to fail, and that they'll have to go through Moria in the end. In a sense, Gandalf says, all right, let's get this over with, whereas Boromir doesn't balk at their prospects and says, going up the mountains in winter? We'll need wood. Um, yes. I, um... I think... I think you're right, to Juice Man about Gandalf's expectations. Um, I think that Gandalf's... Um, now, we'd already discussed how Amdir seems to be not the basis, or at least not the primary basis, of their decision-making process, right? Amdir, remember, being that kind of hope which is sort of calculating or anticipating success, right? Hope, uh, uh, you know, like sort of optimism based on your assessment of your odds, essentially. Um uh, how how hopeful, as we say, you are that things are going to work out. Um, and we've been looking at how Estelle, the high hope, the sort of larger faith, is, seems to be the primary guiding principle rather than Umdir. Uh, indeed, Elrond says, let's actively and even aggressively turn away from Umdir um, and do the thing that looks like the fool's hope. Um, uh, Gandalf clearly on board with that plan as well. However, I... I Again, going back to Juice Man to your comment, I agree that I think that this goes a little bit beyond merely um, I'm not going to rely on Amdir. I think that Gandalf is himself privately convinced that he that they're going to end up going through Moria. Um, that although Aragorn is presumably not wrong to dread it. Um, and he seems to give in to Aragorn. Not, I think, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think that he believes this is going to work. And I think that his statement, we must not use the wood, not unless it is a choice between fire and death, um, makes it pretty clear that he, um, he is not in a mindset where he's saying, we're setting out to cross the mountains and whatever we have to do to make it across the mountains, we shall do, right? I mean, he's, that is not the attitude he's expressing there, right? Um, I mean, he is expressing, to some extent, as we said last time, an attitude which basically could be translated as better death than being revealed, right? Better death than being captured. Um, uh, us dying in the ring, being lost in the mountains, is a far more attractive outcome than... Sauron finding out where we are and taking the ring from us. Um, but, because I mean, either way is death, but uh, fewer other people will die, at least immediately, uh, as a consequence of the one than the other. Um, but, but, but I do agree with you. I think it's more than, more than just that. I think that Gandalf is not wholly committed to this. He's not undermining it, I don't think. I mean, I don't think he's sandbagging. Um, I don't think he's trying to make it fail. Um, so that he can get his own way or something like that. Um, but I agree. I do think that he has a sense that Moria is where they're going to end up going. Um, yeah, no, 
Uh, Matt has a comment about uh, back to Boromir. The challenge with Boromir is that we don't have a full picture of him in the council. We get pieces along the way, see his fall, and and then get a sketch of the majesty from which he once fell once we see how people talk about him in Gondor after he's dead. Exactly. And Matt, there too, it's easy to kind of take it with a grain of salt or even even to hear I mean I remember I remember the emotions that I had um cuz I always found Boromir striking and when I heard people talk about him I mean I loved the like myth of Boromir that you get from Gondor Right from the the references to him that we get, especially from Faramir, but from others as well, it creates this sort of mythic picture of how awesome Boromir was, in retrospect. Right, but of course, as a reader, my opinion of him has already been formed by his trying to take the ring from Frodo, and so I remember having a response which was, well, essentially. Excuse me. Essentially, a perception of irony. You know, like, oh, it's it's so sad that they had this exalted picture of Boromir and they don't know the truth, right? Like, wouldn't... Um, and you get a glimpse of that when Faramir figures it out, right? Faramir knows what happened and how his brother fell. Um, and that's sad. Like it's, 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 I always felt bad for Faramir, right? Because as a kid, I did love Faramir much more than I loved Boromir. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, but fourth knowledge, you're absolutely right. This, I think, was the irony that I myself was guilty of and didn't think through enough, uh, which was, um, fourth knowledge says Faramir's love for his brother is very plain. And that should be deeply significant, given how much we're encouraged to trust Faramir's judgment. Yes. Yeah, Faramir's not just wrong about Boromir. Indeed, of course, we will see he's not wrong at all. He's quite um, uh, quite accurate, quite open. He understands that Boromir would have fallen and how Boromir would have fallen. We can see how much better he understands Boromir than Denethor does, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, and yet, you know, he does not have the reaction that I was feeling for him. You know, in my early readings of the book, um, that is like, oh, you know, it's too bad that he, you know, he still has this, you know, sort of uh, <clears throat> unrealistically bloated picture of his brother. Again, it was a. A foolish reading on my part, I think. But, um, yeah. Yeah, Grestown says, uh, I wish there had been more of the brothers together than the little bit in the appendix. I agree. Um, it has always been one of the extra scenes that I've loved most in the Peter Jackson films. Um, even in my very first reactions, when I was still not really prepared to handle an adaptation of The Lord of the Rings um, and was really struggling with reconciling myself to the Peter Jackson films when they first came out. Even then, I loved the scene (coughs) that we got with Boromir and Faramir together. Um, uh, 
uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, so yes, that was definitely a little, um, a little sort of moment of, uh, of wish fulfillment, uh, there. Um, didn't like how that scene ended, but, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> JJ teasing me for enjoying a Lord of the Rings extended edition scene. I like many of them and I have come to appreciate so much of it so much better. Um, oh, Mrs. Crystal, that's a complicated question. Am I a younger or middle child? Middle technically. Um, but I was the youngest of two until I was eight. And then my mom had a second batch. Uh, so, you know, there's me and my sister a year apart and then eight years. And then my two little brothers, two years apart. Um, so I was, I was an older sibling and I was a younger, but I never really was in a middle sibling, a pure sort of middle sibling position. Um, I'm much more like a younger sibling than I am like a middle sibling, I think. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah, it was almost exactly like batches of cookies. Go, go, lady. That's exactly it. Um, okay, anyway. Um, uh, okay, so um, let's see. Oh, I remember what I was going to do. Actually, go on to the slide we're going to discuss. That's what. All right. The company set out again, with good speed at first, but soon their way became steep and difficult. The twisting and climbing road had in many places almost disappeared and was blocked with many fallen stones. The night grew deadly dark under great clouds. A bitter wind swirled among the rocks. By midnight they had climbed to the knees of the great mountains. The narrow path now wound under a sheer wall of cliffs to the left, above which the grim flanks of Carothras towered up, invisible in the gloom. On the right was a gulf of darkness where the land fell suddenly into a deep ravine. Let's just stop there for a minute. Um, notice how many times we have gotten not just landscape descriptions. Um, and by the way, I think that so many people complain about the descriptive passages in Tolkien um, that I think they get lumped together unfairly. Um, that is, people will often sort of uh, lump together into the vague category of um, uh, into the you know, vague category of landscape description. Uh, many very different kinds of passages. Uh, some in which what we're really getting is descriptions of the plants, primarily, that live there, right? Um, sometimes he'll be talking about the shape of the land. Um, sometimes he, and this has been very frequent in this chapter as a whole, in the Ringo South as a whole, he's describing the weather. Notice how much weather description we've gotten in this chapter. Um, from, you know, starting with that cutting cold wind um, that was coming in from the east over the mountains, and then the wind swung around to the south and the sun came out and it was warmer and nice, but you were still seeing the red bloody glow on the side of Carothros as they were approaching at the time when Gimli spoke his piece. And then you got that beautiful, like the, that delightful 
sort of eerie contrast between the, 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 the silence and oppression of Holland under the beautiful, glorious, golden sky without a cloud in the sky, right? Um, and uh, now we're getting the description of Karathras uh, as we begin to approach. Let's just read this again. Think about... Remember also, we got a weather... Dis- we st- Well, started. Um, starting is a difficult claim for any to make, uh, for any paragraph to make. Um, but remember, just as we were finally leaving Rivendell for the first time, we got a description of not just the trees and the valley around them, but remember the wind seething the pines and, um, and that whole kind of... Uh, the gloom and weather description that we were getting there. Um, so let's just pause for a minute at, on this other. And by and I want to pause for two reasons. One, because we can see this pattern. We can see the emphasis on uh, the weather descriptions. And of course, we know the weather is going to be very important as we go up Karathras. Um, but in addition, I want to be thinking about it because, of course, this is also when we are beginning our first real encounter with Karathras himself. The third reason I want to pause and make sure we look at this paragraph is that this is exactly the kind of paragraph that it is super easy to skip, um, to skip over, to not really pay attention to, sentence by sentence. So let's watch again what's going on there. The company set out again with good speed at first, but soon their way became steep and difficult. The twisting and climbing road had in many places almost disappeared and was blocked with many fallen stones. Okay, so notice what we see here. Um, They're following a road, the road from Holland. Um, We know that the uh, Redhorn Gate is an established path. This is a... People go this way all the time, including some spies from Elrond's house just in this past month, like within, I don't know, a few weeks there have just been, um, you know, uh, messengers from Elrond's house that have just come through this place. But in addition to its current use, it is part of this is a, a road that was at some point constructed. It's not just a, a natural pass that uh, people have found and have made a trail through it. There was a road here, an actual road. Um, there was um, presumably some work done to the land uh, in order to smooth and level it. Not level perfectly. You can't level a mountain pass. But you know what I mean. I mean, to make it to make it into a road um, and not just a, pass that's, a path that's climbing over rocks and, uh, and sort of twisting around. And notice what he's told us about it. The road had in many places almost disappeared. Why has it disappeared? Has it disappeared just passage of time? Right? Has it disappeared like a ruinous building might have disappeared or almost completely disappeared? Well, not exactly. It was blocked with many fallen stones. Something has happened to it from outside. Um, it's not just the road is not just sunk into the earth. It's not just, you know, become so overgrown you wouldn't even know it was there anymore. Um, it has... Um, we have this image of the stones coming down from the mountain, right? Now, we're not given in this sentence yet 
any reason to believe that those stones have fallen down onto the road with malice aforethought, right? I mean, there's no indication of that. Um, we're just told that the twisting and climbing road was blocked with many fallen stones. Um, okay, but it's our first little sort of uh, data point, right? The night grew deadly dark under great clouds. Deadly dark. Um, it's nighttime and cloudy. It's very dark when it's nighttime and cloudy. Um, it is deadly dark because they're climbing up a steep pass, um, and it could they could very easily lose their footing and fall. Right. Um, we're that is only conveyed. Right. Again, again, just notice how much work Tolkien does in bringing us into the mindset and perspective of the characters. As we've noticed with many of these other weather landscape slash weather descriptions that we've gotten in this chapter, um, these descriptions are designed not just to show us what um, the company sees, but to help us to feel what they feel. The night is not just dark. It is scary how dark it is. Not because they're afraid of the dark. Because it makes, by itself, with nothing else happening, forget the wind, forget the temperature, forget the snow, merely this level of dark when they cannot light torches because they would give themselves away. They cannot afford to make a light. So they have to proceed in the darkness with no light. I don't know how many of you uh, have tried, have walked, have done much walking around out of doors at night in the pitch black without a light. Um, I have limited experience with this and under the very tamest of circumstances. Uh, <laughs> the circumstances being taking my puppy out to do her business in her little uh, illumination paddock uh, in the middle of the night when it's dark and cloudy or raining or snowing. Um, and uh, sometimes, you know, we'll go out and I, I won't turn on the light um, because I, I, I like to sort of see what that experience is like. Um, it's kind of fun to experience under, you know, controlled circumstances to experience uh, the darkness outside. Um, and it's very spooky, but it is, I find it just amazing how easy it is to get disoriented. How many times, and I'm, mind, I'm on a stone path. <laughs> I'm literally on my garden path. Um, and, uh, and, and yet I'm finding myself like walking into the bushes uh, and missing steps and things like that. Um, it really is... Um, it really is amazing. Um, the idea of doing serious hiking, like up a mountainside, um, over uneven ground, like that just described, where there is an ancient road which is blocked with many fallen stones, and leading a pony, what is more, um, there, it is, uh, um, it is, it is very remarkable. Um, yeah, it is very remarkable. Uh, so, um, 
deadly dark. The word deadly gives us a sharp view into their fear as they as the as the night grows darker and darker um, and they know how dangerous it's going to be um, a bitter wind swirled among the rocks um, re- we are reminded of the bitter wind from before notice that this one is not the other one was um, more uh, linear I guess right sort of it was cutting in you know into their cloaks like a knife right cutting through their cloaks like a knife and and making them freezing cold um, this bitter wind is swirling around them um, a natural consequence of you know being in the terrain that they're in perhaps um, but it begins now we now begin to get something like a picture of what begins to what begins all things together to sound like malice. The fallen stones that have almost blocked the road. The bitter wind, that, the deadly dark that is growing around them. The bitter wind that is swirling among the rocks. Uh, it is like they are struggling against the elements which are struggling back against them. And then notice what happens in the next sentence. By midnight, they had climbed to the knees of the great mountains. The next sentence is the one that contains the first explicit personification, right, uh, of of the mountain. Um, they are on they're on the knees of the mountains. Um, this, of course, is a perfectly good visual descriptive uh, image, right? Um, uh, you know, the mountains don't just rise straight up from the plains, apparently, right? There are, there are foothills down below. Um, so there are, you know, these sort of bumpy lower, uh, you know, portions of the mountain um, which stick up like knees. So here they are climbing... Is the mountain standing or kneeling? I think it's sitting. I think it's sitting. I think you're climbing up onto its lap. Uh, yeah, when you, uh, when when we're talking about the knees of the great mountains, and that I think is, that I think is an actual, actually creepier image, um, to be climbing around on the lap of the great mountains, um, like they're just sitting and looking down at you. You know, you are you are coming to their to their home, right? And you're right, Josh. Karathras has very mighty knees. Absolutely. Um, it is a seat of stone, if you will. <laughs> Praise, yeah, very much, uh, very much. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about Ender's Giant uh, in Ender's Game, uh, the one inside the the video game. Uh, it is an uncomfortable parallel. Um, the narrow path now wound under a sheer wall of cliffs to the left above which the grim flanks of Karathras towered up invisible in the gloom 
On the right was a gulf of darkness, where the land fell suddenly into a steep ravine. And it's almost pitch dark. It seems to be not completely pitch dark. Um, there's a gloom, which under the circumstances is a good thing. Um, Karathras is invisible. You can't actually see the mountain at all. Um, but they are aware of it there. And they know enough to be able to tell that there is a gulf. There's a deeper darkness off to their right. They can't see anything there and know um, that it's a ravine. And Silk Wesket, you're right. There is no gleam in this gloom. Um, there is another G word, though. Gulf. It's not the same as gleam and gloom. Uh, but, um, uh, but we do get... He does love to alliterate the word gloom, for sure. Um, yeah. The grim flanks of Karathras. So they're on his lap now, and his side, right, his flanks, are, uh, are towering up above him. Above them. Um... I even love the image where the land fell suddenly into a deep ravine. Notice how active he has made that description, right? I mean, there was a ravine there. You know, there's a big old pit that you could fall into. But instead of using a, a linking verb like was there, um, he instead describes the land falling into the deep ravine as if it is has like just now given way right um uh yes and as if they are uh uh they are as if they are um you know that it's possible that they're going to follow it yeah um yeah. Um, yes, it does feel like if they take one wrong step, it's all over, Jackie. Um, I don't doubt that they're guiding themselves in part by touch against the cliff, right? Which means that I come back to the personification. When you, if you guide yourself by touch, on the cliff face next to you in the dark as you go up um, you are touching the flanks you're touching the sides right you're tickling Karathras himself as you go up that can't be comfortable now remember that both I think the description and certainly the ascent is helped by the fact that two of them at least have been over this pass at, on multiple occasions before. Um, so this, they're not just feeling their way experimentally, hoping that the path continues. Um, Aragorn and Gandalf, at the very least, and possibly some of the others, it's conceivable that Legolas has been this way before. Uh, we know that none of the rest of them have. Well, do we know? Yeah. No, we do know that Gimli hasn't been there because he's only seen the mountains from a distance um, he's really excited to get this close to them. 
I don't think he's ever reached out and touched Karathras based on his earlier speech. So I think we can know uh, that Gimli hasn't been over this pass before. We don't know if it's true of Legolas. We do know it's true of none of the hobbits. And I think we're pretty sure it's not true of Boromir either. He definitely did not come this way before. Uh, and given his reaction to Lothlorien, I think it's pretty clear he's never been here any other time either. Um, but um, anyway, so again, they're not just guessing their way in the darkness, and yet that doesn't make this easy. JJ, I can't absolutely be certain that Bill the Pony has never been over the past before, but, um, uh, you know, I think it's unlikely that he has, but totally, totally can't rule it out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Laboriously, they climbed a sharp slope and halted for a moment at the top. Frodo felt a soft touch on his face. He put out his arm and saw the dim white flakes of snow settling on his sleeve. So again, you can see there's some light, right? It is not pitch dark yet. Um, he can see something still about a foot away from your face. Um, from, from his face, rather. But it is beginning to snow. They went on. But before long, the snow was falling fast, filling all the air and swirling into Frodo's eyes. The dark bent shapes of Gandalf and Aragorn only a pace or two ahead could hardly be seen. The visibility was bad before. The visibility is really bad now. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, now, uh, yeah, exactly. It's a... Uh, if you can't see somebody a pace or two ahead of you, that's, that's a really strong snow. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a complete, that's a complete whiteout there. Um, has Frodo ever seen snow before? Yeah, almost certainly he has, as we're going to, we're going to get even Sam seen snow before. Um, I don't like this at all, panted Sam just behind. Snow's all right on a fine morning, but I like to be in bed while it's falling. I wish this lot would go off to Hobbiton. Folk might welcome it there. Except on the high moors of the North Farthing, a heavy fall was rare in the Shire, and was regarded as a pleasant event, and a chance for fun. No living hobbit, save Bilbo, could remember the fell winter of 1311, when white wolves invaded the Shire over the frozen brandywine. Exactly, Eternal Cow. We've uh, uh, we've never seen the hobbits. They they they're familiar with snow days, but that's it, right? Their attitude towards snow is much that of uh, uh, well, I don't know if it can possibly match the relief of uh, modern school children, but um, um, but anyway, that's the kind of association that they have with it. This. Um, uh, yeah, Barry Deer says, does anybody else remember the blizzard of 77? No, but I was in the 2010 snowpocalypse down in Delaware. And let me tell you, people who were not prepared for 40 inches of this, for the 40 inches of snow that we got down there. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, 
Um, all right. There are two separate portions. Well, now let me go back a step. There are three elements of our introduction to the snow. The first is the visual, not just visual description, the description of the effect of walking in the snow. The snow falling fast, filling all the air, swirling into Frodo's eyes. The dark bent shapes of Gandalf and Aragorn only a pace or two ahead could hardly be seen. That's the first stage where we're just being told what it was like. Then the second stage is Sam's verbal commentary on it. And then the third stage is the narrator, the narrator's explanation, right? His providing of context for the Hobbit's experience in the snow. Um, that, by the way, is, I think, a very unusual pause. This, by the way, this would be another really interesting paper topic. This would be, this would be another, a really interesting uh, moot discussion. Look at the moments in The Lord of the Rings when the narrator pauses the action and talks outside of time like this, right? Where we get this kind of a, of a, of a narrator's aside. Except on the high moors of the North Farthing, a heavy, a heavy fall was rare in the Shire. We're just, we're just, now it's clear why we're being told this, right? Um, I mean, we are being told this because we're, we want to, you know, we need to know what the Hobbit attitude towards the snow is and is going to be. Um, because Tolkien knows his readers are going to have themselves varying experience with snow. Um, but he wants to make sure that people understand these Hobbits are, have never experienced anything like this. I mean, this is completely new ground in every possible way. Um, but that comes after Sam's... Sam's uh, interjection, right? Well, not interjection. He's not interrupting anybody. Notice what Sam's doing. I think is Sam talking to himself. Frodo hears him. I think Sam's talking to Frodo, right? He probably knows Frodo can hear him. The words which suggest to me that Sam means these words for Frodo's ears. It's possible it could be Bill. It's possible it could be Bill. Um. I think it's Frodo. And the words which suggest to me that it is Frodo to whom he's directing these words and that he means them to be overheard and he's not just muttering to himself are the words just behind. Exactly. Emin Moto, that's exactly what I was thinking about. Panted Sam just behind. 
Sam is right behind Frodo. Um, I think I can even guess why Sam is just behind him. Why is Sam treading on Frodo's heels here? I can think of several reasons. It seems to me to make all kinds of sense that Sam would be walking as close to Frodo as he possibly could. One is to make sure, yeah, that they don't get separated. I mean, visibility. Uh, a pace or two ahead, Gar Gandalf and Aragorn can't be seen. Sam is not going to be cool with that happening with Frodo. If people a pace away are invisible, Sam is clearly going to put himself less than a pace away from Frodo, so that despite the extremely low visibility, he can still see where Frodo is. Right? That seems to me very, very clear. Um, uh, yeah, Arnold says, especially after the Barrow Downs. Yeah, yeah, he got separated from Frodo once. I don't think he's going to let that happen again if he can possibly help it, right? Um, I even wonder if he might be trying to be close enough to... I, that, I think, is the primary reason. Um, but it occurs to me to wonder if, you know, perhaps he's... With the wind swirling around the way that he, that he is, uh, if perhaps he's hoping to block some of the wind uh, from Frodo's back by standing, uh, by standing closer to him there. Um, but... Um, but yes, he is clearly closer to Frodo than Frodo is to Gandalf and Aragorn. Um, so I think he's right behind Frodo and means Frodo to hear. He doesn't address him explicitly. That's why I say means him to overhear. These are words said to himself or as if to himself. Um... But why does he say these things? I don't like this at all. Snow's all right on a fine morning, but I like to be in bed while it's falling. I wish this lot would go off to Hobbiton. Folk might, folk might welcome it there. Once again we see, as we've seen before, Sam not speaking words of encouragement, but what sounds like words of discouragement, almost. I wish I were in bed, right? This is no fun at all. I wish this this snow would go off to Hobbiton. I mean, it's a little bit like his too warm, I shouldn't wonder comment from before. Um, so again, you would think if his primary goal were merely to encourage Frodo, maybe he would say something, I don't know what, Encouraging, right? Um, uh, but he's not being encouraging. He's pointing out how much he dislikes the situation. He is contrasting it with a much more comfortable and happy situation. It's not that I dislike snow, but I like to be in bed while it's falling. Yeah, let's, while we're trundling along uphill in the dark and in the snow. Let's talk about having a nice lion, right, on a winter morning back home. Um, 
why does Sam do this? And why do we get it? Why are we being told that Sam is doing whatever he's doing? Um, one thing that I think that we see here is in other places is Sam being made. He's the he's the voice on the street, right? I mean, he is he is giving voice to the thing that many people are thinking. Sam is not one for being like, well, let's just, you know, be heroic and, um, like, that's not Sam at all. Sam is the one who's like, this is really horrible. I really wish I were not here. I wish that either I or this snow were not here. Right? Um, I would like to be home in bed right now. Or alternatively, I would like this snow to be home in Hobbiton um, so that I could be here without the snow. Rowan, I agree. Sam does not have a stiff upper lip. He does not. Now, I agree. Several people are talking about how Sam seems to be one of those people who just talks out loud and you know, that he has no internal monologue. That's true. Um, but what I'm interested in is what he says. Um, and I think it's important... At the very least, I think it's interesting because this enables us to see more about what Sam is thinking than almost anybody else in the book. Thanks to his lack of, of an internal monologue, right? Um, uh, and I th and that, I think, then leads us to the answer to that why question. We get this glimpse of... What was it actually like to be on that quest? Um, very uncomfortable in, in many occasions. And Sam is not going to sugarcoat that. This is not to say that he isn't, uh, you know, brave, loyal, patient, and all of those things. But he is going to, you know, give voice to those things. And I, I do think that he is, um, uh, yeah, no, well, I don't know. Um, Sam is introduced to us as a dreamer, Wobe. Well, I don't know. Yes and no. I mean, I suppose if being fond of old Mr. Bilbo's tales, you know, being crazy about tales of the old days, as the gaffer says, is to be a dreamer, then he is one. But I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that word applied to Sam because it has a lot of implications that I don't see in Sam. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, Valori, I think I agree. 
that he is sort of living out and demonstrating uh, from the beginning what Bilbo already said about adventures back in chapter one of The Hobbit. Namely, that they're nasty, uncomfortable things that make you late for dinner. Uh, that, uh, that is a reality that Sam is living out and that we hear about through Sam. Um, yeah. Now, he is... He's not merely complaining, right? When I say he's not being encouraging, I don't mean he's being exactly discouraging either. He's not a wet blanket. You know, he's certainly not the kind of person who just likes, you know, crushing people's hopes and dreams or, you know, preventing anybody from having fun or being hopeful, you know, if, if he sees it happening. That is not Sam. Um, we do see him being playful in his speech here. Um, I mean, goodness, even the understatement that he is, that he is doing here. Snow's all right on a fine morning, but I like to be in bed while it's falling. Well, that's a thing you might say. I mean, I know I've often had that sentiment when I'm out shoveling snow, right? Uh, you know, when snow is falling or just finishing falling uh, and it's still freezing cold and I'm out shoveling the walkways off, I have often, on those times, wished that I was in bed instead of out there in the snow. Or if some other, you know, purpose or duty, which has not very often been my lot, uh, but uh, I certainly have family members who have. Um, uh, you know, I have, uh, living in New Hampshire, I have a number of family members who drive snow plows uh, in the wintertime, um, and so therefore every time there's snow, we're out, you know, driving in it for 30 hours on end. Um, I don't doubt that they often wish that they were in bed while the snow was falling. But you would never get the sense from that, right? Um Snow's all right on a fine morning, but I like to be in bed while it's falling. I mean, that sentence alone. Snow's all right, but I prefer to be in bed. I mean, so he's walking up into an alpine pass, and the snow is so thick that he can't see somebody, you know, three feet ahead of him. And he, um, and his comment is, snow's all right. You know, I don't mind snow. But I prefer to be in bed. I mean, there's um, th that's not exactly encouraging. It's not exactly uh, optimistic, but um, but it's it is kind of gutsy, right? Uh, there is definitely a kind of spirit there in the way that he is doing understatement here. Um, there is a sort of invitation. Um, to not take it lightly. I don't mean, like, not take it seriously. Um, but there is a kind of invitation to, to laugh at the situation. Um, the image that he then goes on to create, how would people in Hobbiton be responding? 
if they had this snow all around them? Well, folk might welcome it there. And if you take uh, if you take this snowstorm that we're suffering through and transport it to Hobbiton, well, see, it'd be great. Then everybody love it. School kids everywhere throwing parties. Um, so there is in this, I think even more than in the too warm, I shouldn't wonder statement. Um, he is, there is an invitation to laugh at the end, which was true. You're a member of the too warm, I shouldn't wonder statement. Um, which if I'm remembering correctly ended with, uh, No, that wasn't the fair jawbreaker dwarf language speech, was it? My shifting things in my head, I might be. Um, but uh, it is definitely not exactly a positive attitude, um, but an invitation to laugh even at their situation. Um, Yeah, exactly. The parallel he chooses to draw makes the circumstances seem uncomfortable rather than perilous. Yes, it is too bad that we don't get to stay in bed while this is happening. And it's too bad that this is happening here instead of in Hobbiton, where people would have really enjoyed themselves. Um, yeah, it, that was the Jawcracker passage. Chris, thank you. Yeah, I, I thought so, but I sometimes I trans, transplant things in my head. Um... Yeah, so you remember that one he ended by inviting laughter at his own expense. Here, he's clowning a little bit as well at the end. Not quite as directly, not in the sense of inviting laughter at his own expense to the same extent. Um, but um, but I do think that there's a kind of light, lightening of the burden, or at least an attempt to light, lighten the burden. Um, but so we get the description of the snow and how very thick and how very dangerous it is. Then we get Sam's comment. Then we get the narrator's further commentary. Right? Except on the high moors of the North Farthing, a heavy fall was rare in the Shire and was regarded as a pleasant event and a chance for fun. No living hobbit save Bilbo could remember the fell winter of 1311 when white wolves invaded the Shire over the frozen Brandywine. It's almost like the narrator... Um, it's almost like the narrator has taken Sam's cue. Right? Um, has taken Sam's cue of breaking away from the moment that's, of course, one of the other things that we can see Sam doing here. Inviting Frodo to think about home. Imagine Hobbiton. Um, folk might welcome it there. Ah, like folk might welcome us <laughs> if we were there, right? Um, at least some of them. Uh, yeah. So... He is not just saying something like, just think of home, Mr. Frodo, or just, um, 
you know, um, it helps if you if you think about Hobbiton instead of just thinking about this horrible frozen place that we're in right now. And yet his words manage that. They do convey this image, which I think does not sound discouraging, does not sound. It could be discouraging to be reminded of lying in a nice snug bed, watching the snow fall outside the window. Um, that could be a little bit, you know, not the kind of thing you want to be remembering uh, when you're in this situation. And yet, um, I think the net result is to make the whole thing lighter. There's um, there's a, a sort of a logical follow-up, too. I wish this lot would go off to Hobbiton. Folk, folk might welcome it there. If the storm were in Hobbiton, it would be good. It would be fine. Instead, Hobbiton is in the snowstorm, right? They are, anyway, as representatives of Hobbiton. Um, some part of Hobbiton has instead come to the storm instead of the storm going to Hobbiton. And so maybe maybe it can be maybe it can be okay here too, right? Um uh so I I, I do think in the end um that he is the net effect of what he says is encouraging, even though again it doesn't initially think. It doesn't initially sound like he is. Um Yes, JJ, I agree. I do think that an actor could deliver these lines in a merely grumbling manner, uh, but I think Sam's being lighter than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you're right, JJ, your comment there and what we were talking about, about Boromir and giving Boromir stage directions, it just sort of reminds me of how much, um, you know, Again, I think about adaptations and people talking about, like, they need to go straight from the book as if that makes it trivial, right? Um, as if even delivering the lines from the book in an adaptation doesn't require interpretation, about which not everyone would agree, right? Um, but um, but anyway. Uh, yes, Tollers is thinking about uh, Bilbo... Um, Bilbo's recollections of home at various points in his journey in The Hobbit, right? Um, not for the last time, Tullers, right? That, that's the, the kind of uh, scenes that you're thinking about. Um, Sam is doing a similar thing. It's not quite... With Bilbo, it's more... It's more explicitly an escape. Um, when he is escaping from his surroundings and imagining himself instead. Uh, back in front of his fireplace with the kettle just beginning to sing. Sam's images, his words here, are not exactly escapist in the long way, in the same way. Um, but they are, um, they do, I, I, I agree, have a similar kind of, have a similar kind of effect. It's, it's situational hobbitry, Wobe, I agree, I agree. Um, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, well, back to the narrator's intervention. On the one hand, the narrator's 
interruption intervention here in the second half of that last paragraph um, does provide us more context. It does help us to understand that com combined with Sam's words help us to understand that this even this amount of snow like there everything about the situation is beyond uh the uh beyond the 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 possible reach of any comparison to anything the hobbits have ever experienced before um yeah um so that's one thing that's conveyed here But there's a, there's a recognition. Again, the, the first sentence especially, the tone of that first sentence is uh, there's a kind of innocence there. There's a kind of uh, following up on, on Sam's tone. Um, folk might welcome it there. And then we get Except on the high moors of the North Farthing, a heavy fall was rare in the Shire and was re regarded as a pleasant event and a chance for fun. Pleasant event and chance for fun were not phrases that it looked like we were headed towards just a couple sentences ago, right? Um, I mean, if once we had gotten as far as the dark bent shapes of Gandalf and Aragorn, only a pace or two ahead could hardly be seen. Um, I don't think anybody is prepared to be associating snow with a pleasant event and a chance for fun, right? Um, and yet, the narrator goes there, thanks to Sam, right? In response to Sam, almost. Um, we do get a gentle acknowledgement, not only of the, gen of the danger of winter, but of the sort of historical danger of winter that hobbits themselves have experienced deadly winter conditions back in the fell winter of 1311. Um, though notice that what he points out is not hypothermia, right? He doesn't talk about how in the fell winter of 1311, many starved to death, many froze to death, right? There was terrible suffering in the Shire as a consequence of the extreme and prolonged winter of 1311. Those things would be true. The narrator could say those things, but that's not what we get. Instead, we're just told that wolves invaded the Shire over the frozen Brandywine, um, as if the winter is still associated with danger and the, with, you know, danger and the risk of death with the invasion of wolves. Um, but it also... Uh, distances the winter. Okay, just, the winter becomes a means, not an end, right? It becomes, it facilitates danger, the arrival of the wolves. He doesn't talk about the winter itself being again, the prospect of, you know, frozen hobbits dying in snowdrifts, as is a very real prospect in the next 12 hours here, um, is not something that he explicitly raises here. Um, yeah. Um, 
I... I think... I quite like the idea. Well, I'm torn. On the one hand, I quite like the idea that Bilbo wrote this... wrote, wrote these two sentences. I agree that they sound like Bilbo. Uh, many people are talking about how this kind of sounds like the Hobbit narrator more than the Lord of the Rings narrator. Um, I agree. But um, I have a hard time, given what we're told later on, um, I don't think that Bilbo has access to this. Bilbo hears their stories, but Frodo's not written it yet. And I don't know that Bilbo is going to be in a place where he is going to get a chance to read Frodo's writings and edit them, you know, add to them like this. Not from here on out. Um, that Frodo will have written some of the earliest chapters with Bilbo's help and encouragement while they were in Rivendell before they, you know, before they left uh, uh, you know, just a few weeks on Christmas. I think that is very possible. Um, we know that Bilbo is planning to do that, right? There were whole chapters of stuff before you even got here. Um, he is uh, definitely wanting to do that, but um, when does Frodo who we're told is the primary narrator. When does Frodo write this part of the story? When does he write this chapter? I'm not sure it's... I'm not sure it's until after he gets home. We're told that... Um, you know, who is it? Mary? Pippin? Forget which. Makes the joke about um, how Frodo is going to have to be locked in a tower so that he can write it all down before he forgets or else Bilbo will be dreadfully disappointed. Um, you know, a joke made round about the field of Cormallon, right? Um, but I don't know that he does that. Um, the way that he sits down to it <coughs> in Bag End once they get back seems to be the primary time. Um, it's Pippin. Thanks. Thanks, JJ. Um, but, um, anyway, so I doubt it's tempting to say that that's Bilbo as a narrator to go back to playing the narrator game, but I rather doubt it. I rather doubt it. I think it is possible that Frodo could be trying to imitate that style, but I don't think, uh, um, I don't think Bilbo actually wrote it. Um, Yeah, this will come back, Ray, exactly as you suggest. Um, fairly soon, we're going to be talking about Bilbo in his role as narrator again. Um, okay. All right. What well, is getting late? Um, let's. Uh, it's field trip time. So let's move on to the field trip. Um, we will see what happens in the continued snow. As we move forward here next week, should be back next week, uh, planning on that. I think we've got 
two more weeks clear after this uh, before um, uh, things start getting uh, before I'm traveling again uh, for Christmas time um, but um, we will we will see I still am not 100% sure um, I might yeah we'll see maybe next week I'll have more of an update about uh, the week after um, but uh, in any case we I, I expect to be here again next week where we'll get more snow thanks everybody uh, so for those of you who are just here for book discussion I'll see you guys next week and let us continue our field trips we're going to go back down to Cardolan I think this evening good evening Valori how are you Good evening. We got a big crowd tonight. Look at all this. Yeah, we do. We do. Hang on a second. So I'm yeah. Having said that, I just concealed them because I'm waiting for my game to crash. Which there it goes. All right. <laughs> That's right. Everybody's here. Yeah. But yeah, so conversation in chat was really interesting too because they're all like, well, like, why did they put in about Bilbo in the winter? Is it because nobody knows? How would they know about that? And uh, many of us speculated that probably the entire Shire knew that Bilbo had vague <laughs> memories of when he was a small child during the, the, the fell winter. I, I like, Perhaps so. Now, he was pretty young, right? So, yeah. you know, I don't think he would have been the hero of very many stories and about it. No, yeah, it was probably like, you know, was talking about, oh, yes, I remember my pappy going out with a garden rake to fight the wolves and huddling together with me, ma'am, under the blankets because we ran out of wood, that sort of thing. Right, right, exactly. The, yeah. The house on the prairie stuff. But we also speculated that this is probably a story that came out every time there was a snowflake falling through the sky. It is possible. It is possible. Um, oh, did you go on ahead? Yeah, so I'm just about in here. Oh, I'm, still, I'm still inviting people to the raid. I still haven't done it all yet. That all right. Good. All right. Okay. Um, all right. So let's head back down to uh, what's her face, yeah. Garwin's convoy. Yep. Right. Oh, thanks, Trifle. Yeah, I wasn't remembering the dates exactly. Bilbo was twenty-one. I thought he was younger. Okay, great. He was twenty-one, 21? so he will. He yeah, will remember it. I still don't think he would have been the protagonist of very many. Uh, yeah, no, nah, he'd been the shoveler, not the fire, not the one spinning off the one. Right. Yeah, I don't know, but yeah, certainly enough to know plenty of stories. Um, yes, a young tween, so he certainly wouldn't have been, uh, you know, leading any uh, expeditions against the wolves or anything like no. that. But possibly finding food and wood, though. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um. Okay. okay, so today, the goal for today is we're gonna we're gonna try to get a sense of the lay of the land up there inside the city castle. Yes. The discovery of that uh, that monolith right near the old castle is still very very interesting. I'm still thinking a lot about that. Um, hmm. 
because it's just it's very interesting to me you could see how so the the two things that we found last week i find very interesting in combination that is that monolith up there which just hooved into view again on my screen and the uh the fact that wait i forget are we supposed to go up or down I think the hinge was up on the hill, but... Right. What's the main entrance here? Is it down this way? Do we go up this way? I don't know. Yeah, I think we're I supposed to go up this one. hill, right? Yeah. I haven't seen that one yet. Okay. Anyway, um... Okay. So... So, so what I'm saying is the combination of the two things. First of all, we noticed that monolith. Second of all we found that this is not by any stretch a, uh, a you know an impenetrable defensive position as far as the the lay of the land outside is concerned oh no did we lose somebody <laughs> uh oh the uh, gauntment causing problems here we have a couple of twenties in our midst. Ah, I see. Um, anyway, so here, here's 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 the point I'm trying to make. If this fortress or whatever it is had been built on like unimpeachable defensive on a, on an unimpeachable defensive position, then I might think that the monolith was kind of a coincidence, right? That like the you know. They, the people of Cardolan built their city up here on this place because it was the best and most defensible place to build it. And when they were building it, they discover, oh, look, some of the ancient peoples of this land also built something here. But, you know, like, I guess they have good taste, too. Right. But that's not going to stop us building our fortress in this most defensible of positions. Oh, yeah. Um, however, I do not think. This is a, an indefensibly, or, or an, you know, an, a, an inescapably excellent defensive position. Yeah. Which Makes leads me, me to like wonder that. if perhaps the evidence of the previous buildings here, of the, the monolith and such, mm -hmm. is why they built this city here in the uh, like if it yeah, influenced it's, them. It smacks of politics, it does. Right, if, if yeah, if, if it's not despite it, but because of it that they built that here. Okay, so what we're in here seems to be the central structure. On that ground floor where we just were, that's where the throne was, right? I think so. And now up here on the second story, now we've got this whole ascending stairs ziggurat thing going on. Mm -hmm. Right, so we have... This three-layer courtyard of, here. Like a, like, a, like a South American temple, almost. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm being made to think of. Now, up here on level three, we get the gazebo with the prominent statue of the woman with the prominent brooch on her shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, we do get these the gaunt men, Nancy, which I do think is interesting. Um, because of course the gaunt men have been associated from the beginning, not just with, um, not just corrupted, you know, spirits of the land gone wrong, as we've seen in many places. Um, yeah. But malicious, you know, figures who are performing these sort of like quasi-religious rites that are creating whites, you know, that are bringing, that are joining evil spirits to bodies of the dead and uh, creating this problem in the first place, right? Yeah, very much in the tradition of the Black Numenorians. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so up here on the third story, we get yeah, some lovely get views, the... though they're views of the courtyard. So that's the entrance, right? Yeah, yeah there's the so. there's the there's a little monolith again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's and... there's the entrance, and there's the. So it's really kind of all about this one big central building. Uh, yeah, they definitely wanted something bigger and better than the the hinges that were there. Oh, this is the crown. This the the this is the. Oh yeah, throne. yeah, the big up pipe here. organ. That's right. Yeah, the pipe organ throne. Okay, so up here in this, not the center, but at the highest point of the highest level, right up the final sweeping staircase here, we get the throne. Um. Hmm. Hang on a second. Hmm. Ooh, yeah. Remind me not to jump off that. That's interesting. <laughs> So this Okay, so what's interesting to me about this here is that this notice how this is arched. Yeah, it's arched. It's not a flat courtyard. This is not a courtyard that sits before the throne. This is a bridge to the throne from whatever this was been bricked up. Oh, yeah, they had stuff like that in their Numenos. Yeah. So we've got this hall over here. And then a big old, a very wide, it's not a, a long span of a bridge, but it's a very wide span, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, look, it's like four times wider than the width of the doorway, right, is what I mean. You know, it's got this huge courtyard-esque bridge that sweeps across to the stairway, then up to the, what, like audience chamber here. Which it's was certainly a power move, like yeah, making them look down at these big lofty heights, being buffeted around by wind and possibly weather, because exposed all just to talk to the king. Like, yeah, that is. You can approach it from the side. Way. It's not like they're. I mean, it would be it would be an even greater statement if uh, if this path, like if this were a narrow bridge. And uh, and it was the only way up to the throne. Then it would be an even bigger statement, right? Yeah, which we've seen more of an Enuminas than here. This is like a smaller version of yeah. what they do in Enuminas. Yeah. I wonder what that. So, what does the tower look like? It's a huge. What was this like a temple-esque sort of thing across the way here? Look at this. Sense. It looks like it had maybe big windows, like big old you know, stained glass windows or something. Mm -hmm. And it was a very tall, arched, it looks like, building. We can't get into it. We 
can't, so we can't see much more of that. Let me see if I can come around the corner here. Yeah, they got. Uh, I'm noticing all these Romanesque arches on these colonnades or something like that. These sort of rifted pathways. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to see what we can see of this building from the side. Huh. Yeah, and that looks inaccessible from anywhere else. Okay. So, I'm revising my opinion. Yeah. That's not an approach to the throne. That's an approach from the throne. Oh, that's where the king goes back to the chambers. Or something. Either it's his private chambers, which is possible. That could have been like the royal apartments. But if so, it's weird that he ceremonially faces it, right? Like, I'm ceremonially facing my apartment, right? Oh, uh well, I guess if, if this is going to have the manpower that I think it does, like, I would figure this is the place you would funnel the guests through while privileged people have the greater, brand and easier access. Right. It's possible. It's possible. Um, but I'm... I'm thinking... I mean, it's what you're staring at. What you're When you sit on the throne, what you're looking at is the door there with the insignia you've got this open way and there doesn't seem to be any evidence of a gate here right mm -hmm. this was an open doorway that okay. stares straight out and all you can see from the throne is that doorway and the capital and you know the the one of these days i'm going to remember the vocabulary that the thing the half moon thing at the top of the like where the tower is there's a there's a word for that and I keep I know, I'm blanking too. Yeah. Anyway. On top of the lintel. It's on top of the lintel. It's the, yeah, it's above the lintel. Um like a freeze or something, I don't know. So I that seems important. That seems significant. This is why I'm more inclined to think that the building over there was like a temple rather than a like it's like the holy of holies which is being watched over by the king and only the king has vision of and access to rather than i mean if it were the royal apartments i'd expect it to be behind the throne you know yeah yeah i mean yeah you're you're talking about it like there'd be some sort of palantir inside it or something or something could it be a treasury I, okay it could be a tra yeah it's possible but i but no, no, I, I, again, I don't think so. And it's the sight lines. It's the sight lines that make me think that it's not. The sight lines are important. When you're sitting on your throne, what you're looking at, what you're looking at from your throne matters, right? I mean, like you put your throne in a particular place so that as you're sitting in your throne, you're, you're there, like you've got your, your authority, right? Is sort of coming out. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, in some cases, it's the throne room itself. Think about, for instance, um, the throne room. I'm thinking about it, of course, from my Wigan stream uh, at the marathon. The throne room in Erebor, in in game, right? Or even yeah. in um, Thorn Gate, mm -hmm. where you've got this huge vaulted long chamber leading up and so from the throne you are not only looking down over anybody who's gathering before the throne and you're looking 
way down at them, right, because of the steep stairs going up to the throne. But you're also uh, looking out, you know, down this entire long, especially in Erebor, this very, very long hallway, right, leading up. Um, so that everything, as soon as you step into this room, like the king is very high up and very far away from you. And you can approach the throne, but you are, it takes forever to approach the throne. And from the throne, you're sitting watching, like, this symbolic effect, right, is like, I can see everyone everything that approaches Erebor, right? I have this view of, you know, everything that's coming my way. Um, mm -hmm. And I am in a superior position over it because I'm here not only at the end of the hallway, but I'm high up. Um, and... Um, but in a lot of throne rooms, the king is the focal point. Yes. He doesn't have the best view. He is the best view. Well, yes, though those two things often come together. I mean, if the sight lines, the sight lines certainly should all lead to the throne from the throne room, but that also means the, the sight lines from the throne are going to lead to everywhere, too. Um, but here, the sight lines are conspicuously constricted and funneled by the columns straight to that door. Yeah. Now, you would be able to see the people who are here. And from here, you know, like I'm standing up here by the throne. You guys all are down below me. There is a flight of stairs here. It's not a huge flight. Of it's not an Erebor-esque flight of stairs by any stretch. But it's enough <laughs> such that if you're actually, you know, sitting up here, that you would be, you know, be able easily to see anybody in this room. But it's a very little room. I mean, the room is not the emphasis, I think. Mm -hmm. Instead, what is the emphasis is that thing. And then again, when I was looking at it from the side, I mean, it could go a couple different ways. Um, like as far as what that building was. But the thing that strikes me most about it is I don't see a lot of entrance entrances or exits for it elsewhere. It seems to be we remember we're up on the third story of this building and there's like what is across the way there through that door is not something which is itself also on top of a three-story ziggurat kind of thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's no stairs on the outside leading up towards that. There's no other approach to the inside of that building that I can see except through that door that you that is square in your view when you're sitting on the throne. Yeah, like I'm sitting on it now, and honestly, my best view is to my left and my right. Oh yeah, you can. If you turn your head, you can see like a beautiful view. Oh, hang on, we can see more this way, can't we? Oh yeah. Okay, so from over here, we got this arching bridge, which doesn't go that far, actually. Shoot, from where we were, I thought it went all the way across. Yep, it looked like there were both sides of whatever that door went to. Both sides of it were just sheer walls. So it was like this big, almost tower over there with the door in it and the one door into it you're looking at from the, you're staring at from the throne. Yeah. Now, is that like scaffolding or is that just bits of the tower that are still holding together? I, I think it's, I think it's bits of the, it's bits of the tower. Oh yeah, I can see it's marble now. Yeah. Now, JJ, I agree. You can get down in the ground floor of the. Oh, oh, you mean like from the ground? Yeah. Yeah. What's that? Was, that's what I was gonna do next. The main reason I'm thinking about all this stuff so much, 
is that I'm trying to get into the mindset of which ones are the stairs? That's not the stairs. These are the stairs. Okay. Um, I'm trying to get into the mindset of the people who built um, who built this place. What are they... How do they think of themselves? You know? Okay. So this, though we... I wasn't paying attention. This is the basement of whatever that building was. Yeah. Here's that little side place we could see from the far bridge. Not sure what this little place is. Um, no, 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 okay, I thought this might slope up to it, but no, there's a ceiling here. Yeah, this is the other half of the building now. So the door is like two stories up, two and a half, you know, one and a half stories up from where I am right now. So yeah, all we can see on the inside, which I didn't actually want to slide down there, all we can see from the inside, on both sides you can see those long columns with the empty spots in the middle which look like they were windows mm-hmm. so I this is why I think it looks more t- both the secrecy not secrecy but um, limited access the significance of the primary sight line of the throne being right towards it and those what look like enormous window slits as if it had huge um, windows you know like huge stained glass windows or something inside um, are what make me think that this might have been some kind of temple or something. And yeah, it is broken right in the middle. I agree. Um, and we can't get up there to see what might have been on the upper floors. Nope. Um, but Looks like it's missing quite a few of the floors. Yeah. All of this is suggesting to me that all this is suggesting to me that this place was not really primarily a fortress. Exactly. Mm. Agreed. I mean, there's there's lots more here. So this is the part of the city that's no, no, this is just another approach to it. Or is this the main approach to it? Is um, this is yeah. the door we came in? Uh, yeah, it is, I think. Like, yeah, you get the feeling this place is primarily about optics. Yeah. And it's not about the ground floor. Look at how the ground floor is just surrounded by walls. I mean, the sight lines down here are horrible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean... When all of these buildings, I mean, it, it feels less claustrophobic than it would have done because many of the walls have fallen down. But, I, you know, in the old days, you'd come up into here, you'd feel almost like you're underground. Yeah, like the only vantage point you'd have is from those colonnades up there. It's probably just enough to dump a pot of boiling oil on unwelcome visitors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, conceivably, but it does not have the feel of like a concentric um, you know, fortification or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has walls, obviously. 
Um, I'm not saying that this place wouldn't be at all defensible. Uh, and it is um, a very thick wall. Yeah. You know, with and some corner towers which really look like they mean business. So, again, I'm not trying to suggest that this place was wimpy. Did this function change over time then, possibly? That's one possibility. Another possibility is that they wanted outer defenses, almost like outer defenses only, um, and yet, then once you're inside, um, you, once you're inside, you, uh, um, so something which is designed to be a fortress, not always, but often has, um, like this is when I was talking about concentric defenses, right? Like the outer wall and then the inner wall, uh, like the, the, think about the multiple like the famous multiple lines of defense in Minas Tirith, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how you've got to work your way up all seven levels, going through the city lengthwise every time. Um, you know, you could fight a... You could fight a fighting retreat inside Minas Tirith for weeks, right? Um, whereas the defenses here seem primarily to be just on the outside. Nice big thick walls around the outside. But then inside, um, sort of less about that, it seems to me, in some ways. Yeah, so the question is, like, when did the zombie invasion happen? The zombie invasion? Yeah. Yeah. Because we're, we're definitely in sort of a poltergeist situation, you know. Like, well, move the stones and you didn't move the bodies! <laughs> right. I mean, the very fact that, the very fact that we have unquiet dead you know in this ruin almost suggests that burial might have been part of what happened here I mean could this yeah. have been a tomb or well, there have been tombs here the quests to find out oh. Yeah, I mean, we might, we probably would learn more from the quests. Someday, I will learn more about that. But it, it does seem, I don't know, at the very least, sort of plausible. Let's explain, but there's no windows on any of the floors. Maybe they all pricked up ages ago. Yeah. That's like step number one of zombie, you know, fortress barricades. You know, lock up all the windows. Yeah. And yes, Almere, you're right. The the henge is a cue towards that, right? Like it's, it may not be the burial ground of the modern Cartilingians that are being disturbed here, right? It may be that this was constructed on the burial grounds of the older society. Yeah, the, where the, where the meniers and, and, and yes. standing stones came from. Exactly. And it's there, dead who are being made unquiet here. Yeah, that's why I made the poltergeist reference. It's definitely, they just moved in and thought, no big deal. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, surely now of course... Come back to bite us in the butt. Yeah, now the association between 
the you know the cardinal engines um which is just a joke by the way i can't resist calling them cardinal engines just because i think it's funny not that i think that's actually the logical adjective to use for them but um anyway of course they're associated with the barrow downs in the text and so therefore the connection but you know that the lotro people should basically um you know play up the connection between whites or the dead and um uh and the people of Cardolan certainly makes a certain amount of sense um but uh yeah yeah um but yeah which direction does it go did they have themselves death you know death cults cuz here's an interesting thing what if what if that building, that building through the door across the bridge, what if that building were a mausoleum? Oh. And then the idea of the sight line of the king from the throne being facing the mausoleum that's, would be a, a really cool... like proposition here. Yeah, well, it would be a very cool statement of that Numenorian and post-Numenorian fixation on death, right? Well, in, in the face of waning waning longevity. Yeah, of, you know, uh, building more and more elaborate tombs for the dead and and uh, thinking more about, um, you know, your dead ancestors than you think about, uh, you know, your children and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, look at this gazebo. This is a memorial. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It's possible. It's Paul. It's and and certainly we may. Oh, 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 you're you're making it sound like sort of a pet cemetery thing where we just found this burial ground and decided to use it. Right. Not yeah. I I I am not sure exactly how pet cemetery they're going here, um, but uh, but again, certainly we know that the that sort of fixation on death is a very well established thing. Um, I wonder. Well, we can. Uh, we are apparently looking at this excitingly enormous map. Um, we will get other opportunities to see uh, what uh, the people of Cardolan were like, and if we can either place this within a particular period of Cardolan history, um, which might help us to see if this is an early or late, if we think this is an early or late construction. What is the state of decay of this ruin? and uh, the state of its architecture and um, iconography compared to other ruins that we will find uh, in this area. Um, so we'll see about that. Um, yeah, no, okay. Well, I feel good about this. So next time what we're, we're going to go back in time a little bit because you'll remember when I was wandering around in the north of Dal Ernil trying to find and see if there was a, you know, what that approach from the north was like and how ill-defensible that was from that direction. Oh, yeah. I happened into Sarkvorn up here by the road and I saw what looked to me very much like ruins from the original human settlers. And I want to go back and explore that more. So yeah, uh, next time, I want to go right over to Sarkvorn and see what we can find there uh, to pursue the hint that we've been given with the men here over on the other side um, 
you know, with, with, with the hinge over there and see if we can find evidence of the much earlier layer of architecture beneath this here. Um, and uh, we'll see how that goes. So, all right. Um, that's where we will head next week as we continue our fascinating archaeological survey of this new land of Gardalin uh, that we're discovering here. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, for Laurie, for joining me, as always. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Happy Feast to St. Nicholas, everyone. Yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, thanks, everybody. And uh, we will uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye, Bye. now.